0: Awakenings, Chapter 13, read by Achan Suchito and Nick Scott Achan and Nick have been attacked and robbed when their walking pilgrimage took them through forest beyond the Buddhist holy site of Rajgir. Relieved to be alive and with a sense of freedom at having let everything go, they return to Rajgir with just the clothes they are wearing and Nick covered in blood. Chapter 13, Landing Place
1: According to the Buddhist scriptures, when you pass away from the land of the living, you arise in the darkness before King Yama, the lord of the dead. There, you are asked to recall your life and an assessment becomes clear. Yama's officers haul you off for a sojourn in one of the many hell realms or escort you to one of the abodes of bliss or usher you straight back into the human arena. I found all this difficult to believe until entering the yard of the Rajgir police station on the night of the robbery. I might as well be dead. After all, I had offered my head to a man with an axe. I felt light and airy, floating in a state, like that mentioned by people who have died on an operating table and seen their body far below being worked on by anxious surgeons. Here, in the Rajagir police station, the surgeons were, however, far from anxious. A few officers wrapped in blankets were slumped in chairs under a tarpaulin roof. Around a gas lantern were a few vacant faces, the eyes gently scanning sheets of paper, an occasional sucking in of cheeks and fidgeting of the body. Reactions and responses hung, suspended in the gloom. I was lingering in the assumption that, after some unfathomable cognitive process, our presence would be noticed. It was more like awaiting rebirth than being alive. The night was cool. At least I had a robe on and nick a white wrap. The people at the Burmese Vihara had immediately seen to that. They were shocked and ashamed that such a thing had happened in India to Buddhist pilgrims. Their reaction surprised me. In my mind... The robbery seemed as fair as anything ever is. Poor, desperate people see tourists with lots of money. They see Buddhist monks with expensive equipment travelling in air-conditioned buses. They see wealthy Jain pilgrims and hawkers and sadhus making money out of them. Why shouldn't they have a share of the harvest? They owed me no kindness and knew only the law of survival. For them, the human realm was like this." And as for myself, refuge had become very clear. Something in me on that dusty track handed over my life rather than going to fear. When I look back on my mind state at the time, the dominant mood had been to maintain calm and introspection. What had seemed sensible at the time was for the group of robbers to simply go through our belongings, take what they wanted, most was of no monetary worth, and then allow us to continue on our way with the rest. I had felt some irritation at their frenzied mind states, but I had actually been quite open to them taking our stuff. I had not done anything against Dumber, so my mind had remained clear. They had left me one robe to wear around my waist, my sandals, and a bandage on my foot. Maybe that was enough? It was incredible how much stuff—water filter, lantern, torch, clock, knife—I had checked over each morning in the pre-dawn gloom to make sure that I hadn't lost it. How much stuff I had struggled over, squashing into a bag that I then would sling over my shoulder and lug along for twelve hours each day. A bag cutting into my shoulders at every step. A bag watched carefully whenever we sat down for tea. Sadly, some of the pilgrimage had gone with it. The relics that people had given me and the possibility of offering them to the shrines of the holy places, the mala beads and the Buddha Rupa, with the dimension of noble company. All gone. And the diary too with all the details of where we had been and who we had stayed with, the record that was to be our future offering back to the Sangha. The past, gone. The future, gone. And the present, wonderfully free and unformed, unformable. We are going nowhere. I felt no need for direction just the rest in the way it is. To know that, as my heart's intention, was worth travelling for a lifetime to discover. I felt dangerously pleased with myself. The decision to report to the police had come from the Vihara. They were anxious and concerned. The manager was insistent that we go with Nick, suitably bespattered with blood. make some deeper impression. And certainly our bags were still somewhere in the forest. Maybe some of the items that were worth stealing, but were of greatest significance, such as film, relics, diary, might be retrieved. So here we were, looking for re-entry into the human world of owning and choosing. A world I did not find very convincing. It seemed better to float for a while.
0: Nick Scott In Buddhism much is made of taking refuge in the Buddha and in the wisdom he represents. I had a real physical sense of that refuge, bowing my vulnerable living body to that big stone image in the shrine room of the vihara. I also bowed to Ajahn Chichito, as I felt he had done the right thing in the forest and I wanted to honour that. He kept calm and gave them what they wanted. But I resisted, and the robbers got into a frenzy that could have killed us both. I could have left this world with the same minds as that water buffalo they'd hounded and killed earlier. It was an important lesson, the kind one rarely gets in a lifetime. We'd lost nearly everything in the robbery. Of the things that are gone, it was not the expensive things that mattered to us most now. Yet, ironically, it was those, the money, the traveller's cheques and the camera, that I'd tried so hard to save. I'd planned to do that in the event of a robbery, to get away and hide the valuables somewhere. But the things we really missed were the irreplaceable ones. Ajahn Sichito's diary, the names and addresses of all the people we'd stayed with, and the sixteen rolls of sly film, each with thirty-six pictures. I'd been carrying them to Budgaya, where we were to meet Sister Tanisara from Ajahn monastery. I'd reckoned it safer to send them back with her than to post them home using the Indian Postal Service. We were only three days from Budgaya when we were robbed. Losing things can be freeing. Providing the mine can put them down. But I still clung to the idea that our bags and the films might be out there in the forest. So I set off to the police station with some hope. I imagined constables systematically searching the forest, walking back and forth in line abreast, like they do on the news back home. Rajgir had a power cut that evening, and the main street was lit by hurricane lamps hanging over the stalls and outside the shops. The police compound was through a dark gap in the wall that ran along one side of the street. Across a wide yard, framed by several long buildings, two lamps hung from a tarpaulin, strung from one of the buildings. their light bathing a couple of desks and several policemen, lounging around them. No one appeared to be doing much, except chatting. But as we sat down at one of the desks, They all started to busy themselves. The policeman opposite was an officer. His khaki uniform of shirt and long baggy shorts was neatly ironed, one silver insignia on each lapel. A leather lanyard ran from one of the lapels and down to the belt, which held a holster with a pistol. You have come to report a crime? This was somewhat obvious as I was covered in blood. We've been robbed. Then you must fill in the appropriate forms. Rajgir police had sprung into action. The officer went off for the forms, but returned accompanied by another officer. A smaller man, a little older than the first, but much more assertive. I am the sub-inspector. Your robbery will be dealt with. But first I am insisting that your injuries are seen to. Across the street at the local hospital, an orderly assiduously cleaned and dressed my cuts with a roll of cotton wool, water, and a very large bottle of iodine. I returned covered in so many large blotches that far more of me was purple than white. The appropriate forms and the sub-inspector were waiting. Everything had to be put down in full, in longhand and in duplicate, His questions seemed to take forever. Still little else could be done now. It was the next morning that mattered. Several times I raised this, and each time the sub-inspector would assure me, We will be visiting the scene of the crime first thing tomorrow. When the forms were finally complete, I asked him what time we'd be leaving. What time are you wanting to leave? Seven? Certainly. It is seven o'clock we are leaving for the scene of the crime. It was said with such assurance that we returned to the Vihara feeling optimistic. I was certain our bags must be there somewhere and provided we got there early enough we might well find them. When I told Venerable Zahendra and the manager our plans for the following day they were less convinced. The manager seemed particularly sceptical about the idea of the police setting out anywhere at seven in the morning. Later as he took us up to our room He offered to come with us, despite his misgivings. He was a good man, and it would be useful to have him along. When we returned the next morning, the police compound was completely empty, except for a jeep. After half an hour, a sleepy policeman appeared, crossed the yard, climbed into the jeep, and drove it away. Nothing further happened, and by eight I was pacing up and down and getting agitated. I felt that if we did not go soon, someone, probably one of the robbers returning, would get our bags. At my signs of agitation, the manager, who had been sitting with us looking not in the least surprised by the lack of policemen, announced that he knew where the sub-inspector was staying. It was a small hotel just down the main street. The sub-inspector was called and came down, still adjusting his dress and obviously having just gotten up. You are wanting to go to the scene of the crime? Yes, we were supposed to go at seven. An important police incident happened last night and so I was late to this hotel. The manager had a look of disbelief, but I said nothing. At least now we could be on our way. When we got back to the station, there was actually a couple of policemen sitting outside. The sub-inspector called out loudly to them in Hindi. Where was the jeep? Where was the driver? No one knew. With a sinking heart, I sat down again. After a good while, the jeep returned. The sub-inspector came out and did some more shouting and the driver went off for petrol. Only when the jeep returned again did the sub-inspector order his men to get ready. My agitated mind couldn't believe it. Surely he could have told them to prepare earlier. I tried to keep calm but after a further half an hour of waiting I decided to go and look to see what was happening. I went round the back and found the constable's barracks. Inside were half a dozen of them, some still getting dressed, others cleaning their rifles, and one shining the buckle of his belt. Then I noticed to the side a figure squatting over a fire with a big pot on it, full of rice. They were cooking their meal. I'd had enough. I went back to the sub-inspector and completely lost my cool. I told him that we were supposed to go at seven, and it was now nearly ten. What was happening? Where were the constables? If we didn't go now, then we were going to go on our own. The result was immediate. He was outside barking out orders in Hindi, and the constables quickly appeared. Suddenly we were ready. Everyone was in the jeep. Atenci Tito and I were in the front, squeezed between the sub-inspector, who was driving, and his number two. In the back sat five policemen and the Vihara manager facing each other, the policemen with their rifles upright between their knees. And hanging on the back was the chokidar, who'd been cooking the rice. The sub-inspector revved the engine, put the jeep into gear, and it shot forward. Away oh, at last! The jeep lurched, and there was a grinding of gears. The sub-inspector didn't seem to be much of a driver, but I didn't care. We were off. He drove out of the compound, turned into the main street, which had the usual assortment of people and animals wandering along it, and set off for the forest. That's when we got the result of all my impatience. The sub-inspector could hardly drive. We went around the corner far too fast and with me crunched up against him he couldn't get at the gear stick. He slapped my knee to get it out of the way and I looked down. When I looked up we were just about to drive into someone. Time seems to stretch out forever when that kind of thing happens. I couldn't believe We were not stopping or swerving. But we didn't. We just got closer and closer and then ploughed into the man from behind. The body and off-white clothes of an Indian peasant crumpled and disappeared from view. There was a sickening softness to the jolting of the jeep. It seemed forever before the jeep Finally stopped At Chensuchito Womp! I had
1: landed. In front of me a man's body jerked back and then forward and then down under the impact from the Jeep. The grating and grinding of a body trapped between the jeep and the road skewered into my mind for several long, numb moments before we stopped. Then we were out of the cab in a scramble. The man, casually walking along the main street a few seconds ago, had become a moaning, bloody heap, dragged out from under the back of the jeep. Confused action. I tried to get closer, but the manager caught me with sad, knowing eyes, tightened his mouth and slowly shook his head. No. Better you, you go. The police clumsily picked the body up and loaded it in the back of the jeep, which turned around and jolted back up the street. Nick and I looked at each other and at the manager, who continued shaking his head. Police, no good. What to do? Go to Vihara. Come. I had landed in India. My brain, hitherto suspended, was suddenly all action. Why hadn't I acted earlier? Standing around in a non-committal way was an inadequate response to the energy of confusion and irritation at the police station. The young sub-inspector was having a difficult time with his uncooperative officers. Perhaps he was new to the post. He had mentioned in a regretful aside that the driver of the jeep was about to retire and no longer bade orders. On top of that, He found himself having to cope with two Westerners expecting things to work like they did in England. Caught in the dilemma and bound by duty, finally the mountain tension had snapped him. A demon had rushed in, thrown five armed policemen, the manager and a boy in the back, while compressing the sub-inspector, Nick, myself, and another policeman into the front of the two-seater. A timorous recommendation for caution slowly oozed, and coagulated in my brain. But by the time I could read it, it was too late. Two men walking side by side had appeared through the windscreen with their backs to us. I glanced over at the driver. His attention was off the road, getting Nick's knee out of the way of the gear stick. A cry moved up my throat as my foot stabbed the floor. But it was too late. Now they were bouncing a writhing body off to the hospital in Bihar Sharif even if he survived. What about his family? And I felt sorry for the sub-inspector. He shouldn't have been driving. It had been our impatience and agitation that had goaded him into it. And the driver shouldn't have wandered off. And the police force should be run more efficiently. And Nick should be more patient. And I should have said something. But however it should have been... That's how it was. Where were you? Nagged the imp that lives in my brain. You could feel things were going out of balance. Always hanging back, not wanting to be involved. I was left alone for the afternoon. The police officer came and went off with Nick to the scene of the crime. Old business about getting our bags back seemed increasingly irrelevant. Everything seemed to be caught in the careening of a world that lost its axis. It didn't matter who and why. The only true action was to get to the point, the mind, and hold it steady. And here, now, there was nobody other than myself to take the responsibility for knowing that.
0: Nick Scott. I felt really low. I blamed myself for the accident. If I'd not finally lost my cool with the sub-inspector, they wouldn't have set off in that rushed way. As we trudged back to the Vihara in silence, Arjun Scicuto looked in the same state of despair as me. At one point, he muttered to himself that it had felt like the same frenzied energy we had seen in the robbers he was right and it was the same energy that resulted in the eruptions of awful communal violence that can come from nothing in India I had now triggered it twice at the Vihara the manager told Venerable Sayanta about all the morning's events while we sat there saying hardly anything there were lots of knowing shakes of the head from the old monk and the manager's wife. An hour later, just as we were about to start the meal, the police returned in the jeep. So I took some chapattis and went out alone to join them. At the edge of the forest we stopped at the forest compound to collect a forest worker who clambered into the back. Then we set off along the dirt track. We'd walked along the previous day, across the stream and into the forest. We stopped again. The sub-inspector had spotted the small tree trunk we'd seen being cut the day before, lying beside the track. The choked and one of the constables were ordered out to manhandle it into the back. From there it was only fifteen minutes by jeep to where we'd been robbed. I told them to stop, and the sub-inspector had me show him the exact spot where they had attacked us. It was just a few metres beyond the highest point of the track, where it began to drop towards Jetian. He stood and looked at the spot. I showed him where they had come out of the forest. He looked hard at that too. Then, having also looked up and down the track, he solemnly pronounced, "'with all the gravitas of an old detective movie. "'This, then, is the scene of the crime. "'He called the other officer and the forest worker over, "'and they started a conversation in Hindi "'which involved pointing up and down the track. "'After a bit I interrupted. "'Please can we look for our bags? "'You said we would. "'They're here somewhere in the forest.' The sub-inspector looked vexed at being interrupted, half-turned and barked out something in Hindi over his shoulder. Behind him, the police constables got up and ambled into the forest, each setting off in a different direction. I followed them. As I've wandered about looking for the bags myself, having given up any idea of a systematic search, I came upon some of the constables. None were searching. One was collecting firewood, two were chopping at a log, and another was standing with the chokidar at the edge of the cliff, looking at the view. I was too depressed by now to do anything about it. I just wandered about on my own, half heartedly trying to find the bags. Then I heard the sub-inspector calling. Mr. Scott, Mr. Scott, where are you? I came back out to find him standing there with a look of triumph on his face, and my hopes began to rise. Yes, we have discovered that in fact the scene of the crime is not in Rajgir Police District, but in Atri Police District. This, he continued, pointing at the place we had parked, is the boundary of Rajgir Police District. Therefore, your crime is not our responsibility. You must talk to Atri Police. And with that, he climbed into the jeep. Now we are returning. I had nothing left. What was the point of anything? I clambered in beside him, and the jeep set off back down the track. At
1: Nick returned, fatigued and exasperated, late in the afternoon. No bags. In some ways it had been the right thing to do, but the mind wasn't right. And that had to be set straight. One man had already been run over through heedlessness. In going or staying, winning or losing, it was clear to me that we had to follow the dumber. And not the world. First, we needed to settle. There was too much crazy energy around. Nick, let's go back to Nalanda and meditate. So we went. The Vihara gave us the few rupees needed to catch a bus and just after nightfall we arrived back at the gates and the dogs of Wat Thai Nalanda. Mechi Ali eventually appeared in her long underwear and sweaters. We must have got her out of bed. And gave a hurried welcome as she opened the gates and scampered off into the darkness. It wasn't the time for a prolonged conversation. We were let into the accommodation block and told to take whatever we needed. A flask of hot coffee appeared. I sat in meditation until late. The pressure relaxed. The empty, peaceful night absorbed it all. In the morning, delicately prepared morsels of toast and western food appeared with our hostess, whose eyes widened at our appearance. Oh, what happened to you? Are you hurt bad? Nick sometimes manifests a battered innocence like the faithful red setter that suffers calamities on account of its exuberance. His tail and ears drooped in sympathy with his numerous cuts and his scruffy shirt and the pants several sizes too small for him given by a guest at the Vihara. His explanation was suitably laconic. We were robbed by six men in Rajgir forest. They had axes and cudgels I had to throw myself down a ravine to escape. The words were hardly necessary. Meji Ali sprang into action with some shouting to the temple workers and an injunction to us to look around for whatever we needed and sprinted in the direction of the kitchen block. What did we need? Back to this realm again. Hmm... I could use some robes that were my size, maybe a small bag, a bottle for some water. In the bathroom I found an old toothbrush and cleaned it up. It was a very small hand towel, that would be useful. Something else caught my eye. It was a drawing by the French cartoonist Penny on the cover of a small notepad such blithe innocence. Well, since it had presented itself along with a pencil and a ballpoint pen, it could come along. It would fit into the palm of my hand, just enough to note the names of people who had helped us. So our world began to find an axis. We were back with positions to work around, places to go, things to carry. I got an upper robe from the stores, picked a handful of Buddha medallions to give to people who might help us. With the water bottle, no pad and pen, small towel, and the used toothbrush, my kit was complete. Mary Chi had given Nick an old zip-up overnight bag from the stores, and a couple of plaid blankets along with his water bottle, and some rupees then we had to rush back to Rajgir, this time by bus, to go through some official procedure with the police. Leaving Nalanda should surely have been more elegant, but Mechi Ali made nothing of it. Having re-established our pilgrimage supplies and fed us breakfast and lunch, she bid us farewell a second time. We had a chance to start again at least walk as far as Bodh Gaya. And the judgment was, surely, to go back with kindness to the human realm. Whatever happened, to connect to it, not to fight, not to complain, not to push.
0: Nick Scott The police returned early that afternoon, this time without the sub-inspector. Instead, his second-in-command came to the door, accompanied by his opposite number from Atri, who seemed a much easier character. Ajahn Suchito was coming with us, as was the manager, and once everyone had been introduced, we all clambered into the jeep. Ajahn Suchito in the front, the manager and me in the back, and we set off again for the forest. Although I now accepted that our bags and the films had probably gone forever, I still wanted to have one last go at finding them. Then I could forget them, and go on to Budgaya. I'd agreed with Azun Suchito that we'd offer a 5,000 rupee reward. How we would get that much money, 100 pounds sterling, I left as a problem for later. On the way, I got the manager to tell the constables in Hindi that we would give the reward to them if they found our bags. They looked much more interested. The back seat was a hard metal bench, so it was a bumpy ride. When we arrived, I climbed gingerly out. As I did so, two of the constables clambered past me, and they were quickly followed by the others. Before I could say or do anything, I had wanted to try and organise the search, they'd all disappeared again into the forest. At least this time they were looking. Ajahn Sucito, the manager and myself, divided up the area between us, and we went into the forest to join them, leaving the two officers having a conversation, presumably about police boundaries. As I walked up and down, quartering my bit of the forest, I passed several of the constables. Each was very intent on the task. One of them was even hacking at the branches with a machete. The possibility of a reward had had an amazing effect. An hour later, all we'd found were a few more shards of the shredded maps. We'd gone over the area thoroughly, and the bags were not there. Back at the jeep, the officers had agreed that the scene of the crime was indeed in Atri Police District. They had a map with them and they showed us how it was some ten yards over the boundary. They called the constables and we all got into the jeep and bounced back along the track to Rajgir. We'd have to walk to Budgaya with only the clothes we stood in and the blankets given to us at Nalanda. If we saved the rupees the Mei-Chi had given me, we'd have just enough to take the train to Calcutta. There, hopefully, we could get the passports, travellers cheques and our air tickets replaced. But not the cash. In Patna, because of the trouble I'd had previously exchanging travelers cheques, I'd changed half of them to cash. Getting things replaced in Calcutta would involve charges and with having to pay to live there while we dealt with all that Indian bureaucracy and replaced the essential parts of our gear, it could cost much of any money we recovered. So perhaps our pilgrimage might not get much beyond Bodh Gaya. But I was just glad to be able to start again. To do that, though, we needed a police report to prove that we had been robbed. The Atri officer said he would write out his report by copying the report prepared by the Rajgir police. To get it, we would now have to go to Atri, 20 miles away. I did ask if we could just have a copy of the Rajgir report, but this was out of the question. Atri was not far off the new route I had planned, one that avoided the forest, so I told the officer we would try to be there the following evening. That way the police could put us up that night. This would also solve the problem of where we were to sleep with just a thin blanket, for the first night anyway. And the man who was run over by the police? We never did find out what happened to him. I did ask. The police said he was at the hospital and being treated. Later, the manager quietly shook his head and told me not to pursue it at chensuchito
1: how quickly how effortlessly the world arises the burmese vihara formerly just an unremarkable stopover was now glowing with Dickensian charm and benevolence. We were the centre of attention. I wrote all their names down on the back page of the notepad, Uzayanta, Dasrat Prasad, formerly the manager, and his wife, Arti. They were from Assam, hence the connection to Buddhism and Burma, then Mechi Ali, and the monk at Vaishali, and whoever else I could remember on the pilgrimage. Then I wrote in the front the names and attributes of the 28 Buddhas, and a brief day-by-day resume of the pilgrimage. After all, as we were now back in the world of relationships and people and time, I had to keep a record for the Sangha. 19th. Japanese monks and Czech. Forest rest. Robbery, to BBV. 20th, BBV, Police chief Accident, Evening, to Nalandar. But the traces of unknowing hung around our continued walk. Despite my objections, Nick was still determined not to go on the main road to Gaia. We would be wandering cross-country with no map just the names of half a dozen villages that Dasrat gave along with his wrap, and his warm farewell. Old patterns arose. Someone for a snack in Mahadevapur, then flowing across the landscape, the hills to our right, occasionally confronting locals with the mispronounced names of the villages and receiving indefinite responses. Somewhere I lost Nick had to retrace my steps to find him sitting under a tree. You might have said something. You were too far ahead of me to call you. Differences in paces and style. The old irritations. And sometimes it was just a matter of guessing, to turn left or right at a crossroads. and laughter, because it didn't matter anyway. Where was there to get to? Off on the road again. One time I came out of a reverie to find Nick walking along and talking with a couple of men. They were teachers and invited us to their school for a meal. That opened into a midday interlude in the little schoolroom. The youngsters had finished their exams and were waiting for the results. Some of them ran off to get some food, and we ate in the schoolroom under the beaming gaze of Indira Gandhi, And stern warnings about flies spreading disease. But the patterns had also unwound and I began to get beyond my ways of thinking. For example, I realised that I loved India. I hadn't been able to see that because I'd always assumed that you couldn't love something you were so irritated by. The thinking mind works in such exclusive patterns and then denies that reality doesn't fit them. But when your head gets turned round, you have to accept consciousness dancing like a stream, flowing on, even as it appears to be occurring in the same time and place, flowing in contradictory directions, according to hidden forces, its surface prickling and wrinkling with every breeze, dimpled by creatures surfacing within it or descending upon it. When the controlling patterns of the will loosen, consciousness is never the same from one moment to the next. It's not even a thing at all, just sensitivity, trembling according to habits and circumstances. Meanwhile, the mapless, clockless day meandered in the sun, joyful at heart, confused and edgy in the mind. Where are we going? The hungry mind hooks onto people and events to assemble some order. A man on a bike stopped and listened to our list of names. Atri, Atri, you must go to Tapo. There is an ancient hot spring there where you can bathe and spend the night. It is in that direction. He was a professor at the University of Gaia. Here is my card. You must stay in my house when you reach Gaia. Then, off on his bike. Heading down the road to Tapo, we come to a village. Men intercepted us, blocked our path. Dakoits, they will kill you. We tried to laugh it off, but what seemed to be the entire male population of the village gathered and formed a blockade across the road. There was no arguing with that. We turned back, back to the vagaries. Eventually, day decided to rest with the descending sun and dropped us on a road with kilometre stones bearing the word tree, one of our projected possible destinations where Nick could tie up some of his police business. How very convenient. Our flagging footsteps livened up. I was riding on a sense of hope and of wonder that the day had taken care of itself. All we had to do was trust its flow. But the day wasn't through yet. Nearing our tree in the dusk, a little old man squatting beside a tree, asked us the familiar Ka-ja-ra-hey! I looked at him. It was strange that someone should be sitting alone in the dusk. Something fishy here. Nick, that little old guy, something odd. In a moment we were both convinced that he was a scout for an ambush party. Almost clutching each other, we hurried up the road toward the scarcely lit village.
2: Nick
0: Scott Atri also had a power cut when we got there. The occasional glimmer came from a window, but most of the town was retreating into the gloom of dusk. Someone had explained in Rajgir that Bihar State had become so short of electricity that they were now rationing it. Each district was allocated so many set hours a day when it was on. For the capital, Patna, this included the evening, the most popular time for electricity. For the more remote districts, like Rajgir and Atri, the electricity times were more inconvenient. The atri police station was on top of a slight rise. It was a big square building surrounded by a veranda, and it was lit from inside by hurricane lamps. The light made it look very welcoming as we approached, but inside they knew nothing of our report. When the officer arrived, he greeted me warmly. Ah, Mr. Scott while ignoring my stranger companion, and explained that the report was not ready yet, and that we would have to wait until the morning. I wasn't surprised. I was getting used to the efficiency of the Bihar police, and anyway it suited us. We could stay the night in the Dak bungalow. The officer went off and returned with a shabbily dressed man holding a lamp. This orderly would take care of you. If there are any problems, you are just to tell him, it was unlikely that he had any English, but it was a nice thought. I am also asking what you are eating for your breakfast. Given the choice, I plumped for my favourite, parottas. He said something to the orderly in Hindi, and then we set off following the swinging light through the streets of Atri to the Dak Bungalow. Next morning, nothing seemed to be happening. The orderly was next door, "'and after a while someone else turned up. "'But they made no move to do anything with us. "'Eventually I went out and tried some of my limited Hindi. "'Breakfast? "'Food? parotta, "'But got no understandable reply. "'When Ajun Satchito tried his Hindi, "'he got nothing better. "'The day was warming up, "'and we both wanted to get under way.' We had hoped to get to Gaia that day, as we now had somewhere to stay there. So I produced ten rupees and tried again. Breakfast? Food? With the slightest movement of his head, he took the proffered money and left. After a while we were taken back to the police station, where the police officer came by to tell us that we were to have breakfast at his house. We were waiting again on the bench on the police veranda when the orderly eventually found us an hour later. He had a tray full of steaming savoury pastries that he must have bought in the market. Ajahn Succito had to explain that we didn't need them now, and that he could take them back. Without the slightest flicker of surprise, he turned and carried them away again. It was nine o'clock by the time we were facing an enormous pile of thick parottas oozing ghee in the garden of the police house. The officer's wife had been cooking us breakfast all along. We should have known. The delay was because the duty of feeding us was being taken so seriously. Around the parotas were plates of bean dishes, vegetable curries, chutneys and curried eggs. Afterwards, we stopped at the police station to get the report, so it was not until 11 that we were on our way again. The parotas lay heavily in our stomachs, we'd miss the pleasant part of the day for walking, and if we were to get to Gaia we would have to walk through the midday heat. As we trudged along, me wanting only to sit down in the shade and fall asleep, we agreed that next time we were offered breakfast we'd turn it down.
1: A meaningless trudge along a straight road in the heat. It was late morning, and Gaia was thirty kilometres away. But that didn't mean much either. I felt my will tighten like a bowstring and aim south toward Gaia, and the body bend to and follow it. Just go on. The heaviness would pass. I'd occasionally stop and look behind. Outlined against the flat landscape, and towering over small dark men, a red-bearded giant was stumbling along. What myth had he walked out of? Tattered shirt wrapped around his drooping head, tight pants that ended halfway down his shins, clutching an overnight bag staggering toward Gaia, this inconceivable, lovable patchwork of humanity. I wait, my heart going out to him. We'll never arrive, but there's no need to stop going on.